hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I want to pick up on the issue of transgender medicine and dedicate this issue towards it since we have a terrific guest later on in the program. And I've been following this along in Texas, Texas uh, through 2020, 20, uh, 2022, developed a um, Senate bill. It was Senate Bill 14 that restrict transgender youth from accessing gender changing care, that is uh, hormones and surgery uh, for individuals under age 18. Now this was signed into law by Governor Abbott and it was set to go into effect September 1st, 2023. And then a legal fight ensued uh, and uh, Texas families uh, brought this forward, and I am reporting from the Texas uh, Tribune's uh, daily uh, uh, newsletter that uh, at the heart of the fight was the new ban on puberty blockers and hormone therapy for transgender children uh, in an ongoing debate on whether those treatments help or hurt youth with gender dysphoria. There was a two-day hearing over an attempt to block the law that was set to occur on September 5th, and um, in fact, that lawsuit did prevail in um, actually getting a stay on the law going into effect. And that, um, you know, this was reported August 15th of 2023. So um, what occurred next was reported on, um, you know, on August uh, uh, 25th, 2023, um, that the, the law was going to go into an effect despite, um, uh, you know, despite this, uh, 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 you know, this uh, legal attempt. And then uh, a district court judge stepped in. So on August 25th, uh, the state district court uh, judge Maria Cantu Hexel wrote that State Bill 14, quote, interferes with Texas families' private decisions and strips Texas parents of the right to seek, direct, and provide medical care for their children, end quote. So in response, the Texas Attorney General's office filed an appeal with the Texas Supreme Court, a move that automatically paused Cantu Hexel's injunction and will allow the law to go into effect September 1st, 2023. The Attorney General's office said such medical treatments are unproven and pushed some legal activists in the medical and psychiatric professions um, in a statement announcing the appeal on the 25th. Filed, following the state's appeal, the plan, plaintiffs filed an emergency request asking the Texas Supreme Court to again temporarily block the law. And on August 31st, 2023, the state's highest court denied that request, ensuring that State Bill 14 will take effect September 1st. Now, um, uh, 
this is important because it's now September 5th, 2023 when I'm doing this recording. So we've had four days of blocking transgender care in Texas. Now that Supreme Court <clears throat> filing done by the Attorney General was assisted by myself. I was asked by the Attorney General's office to write a brief, which I did, an expert report summarizing the data. And I can tell you here on this program, uh, the information is clear that we have a situation where the hormone treatment for transgender medicine, so in the prepubertal phase, uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists are used, and they effectively block the surge in hormones that transform uh, you know, a prepubertal boy into a man, and then the same thing for the uh, transition from a uh, prepubertal girl to a woman. And um, these hormones in multiple studies published make the kids sick. They have um, increased rates of headaches, acne, weight gain, sleep disturbance, uh, nausea, uh, make them feel uh, unwell in more than half of cases. So the... Um, use of uh, straight-up androgens and estrogens after puberty, which is often done if the decision is made to try to live out a, a fantasy of uh, being in the opposite gender after puberty, those hormones also make uh, the teenagers feel sick because it's unnatural for a boy to take estrogens, for instance, unnatural for a woman to take androgens. So here we have a situation where, again, the puberty uh, uh, pre-pubertal drugs, post-pubertal hormones, uh, they simply make the kids more ill. And uh, the parents need to understand that. That's in my uh, expert report. And then I moved on to the surgeries. And I think it's important to cover the surgeries. Let's take the girls first. Uh, the girls t having um, mastectomies, the mastectomies done in the normal breasts of a young woman are complete mastectomies. So every bit of breast tissue is uh, excised out, scraped down to the pectoralis muscle, and then uh, the skin is tightened around the pectoralis muscle and the nipples are, trying, are attempted to be repositioned. Uh, this causes a binding effect, and uh, there's easily a 30% more complication rate with this type of mastectomy. This is very different than a mastectomy that a woman would get for breast cancer. And uh, what we know here is the complication rates are high with infection, uh, abnormal drainage that occurs, uh, and then later on, contracture and binding. So you'll see these incisions which bind the chest forward and uh, the, the chest can't be fully expanded. So the mastectomies are disfiguring. For the girls down below, the procedures that are done uh, include uh, one called metoidioplasty. Metoidioplasty is an attempt to enlarge the clitoris. Uh, it can be made uh, somewhat uh, larger, but not to a full-size penis by any means. Uh, and it doesn't have um, a sexual function of any, any degree. Another procedure is a phalloplasty. The phalloplasty is carving a large amount of tissue out of an arm or a thigh and making it into um, a, a cylindrical penis. The penis then is overlaid on top of the clitoris, uh, and then urine is attempted to try to drain through this new tissue. Uh, as you can imagine, it's uh, very, very complicated. It uh, gets infected. The urine doesn't drain 
completely. Uh, the phalloplasty leaves the, either the arm or the leg permanently disfigured. Uh, importantly, uh, these procedures are uh, likely uh, to be sterilizing. We know that the hormones themselves would be sterilizing, but as a, a girl decides to live out a fantasy as a man, she's giving up her future fertility in almost, in almost every uh, case. Now let's take the boys. What, what do the boys do? Uh, the, probably the most benign thing that boys or young men can do is get breast implants. Uh, nowadays, silicone breast implants are used. Uh, for the boys, they're typically put just underneath the skin so they don't go under the pectoralis muscle because the pectoralis muscle is uh, bigger. So they go underneath the skin and they do look like uh, female breasts. They have all the characteristics of it. And um, those procedures are relatively uncomplicated. The procedures um, for the male genitalia are far more concerning. Um, one procedure is orchiectomy or simply castration. That's chosen in about 5% of cases, uh, and, and that will permanently, obviously, end any hopes for fertility. It's been done throughout history. We know that there's been, in the Bible, you read about eunuchs, for instance, who are castrated so they um, you know, can be around uh, women in a, in a you know, in a concubine or a harem, historically. Uh, the next procedure is a penectomy. That's simply uh, removing the penis. So uh, cutting it off and sewing it shut so there's, there's no a penis there whatsoever. So um, uh, then the urine has to drain out through a stump. The next procedure uh, is called the penile inversion vaginoplasty. There the penis is open uh, longwise, uh, it's all this tissue is cored out, and then it's inverted, and uh, and it's stuffed back inside the pelvis as a blind-ending pouch. Again, the problem is urine drainage, uh, and and there's there's no way that it manages normal secretion, so it tends to get infected or have a bad odor, and doesn't drain urine appropriately. Uh, these procedures are all sterilizing for the young boys. Uh, very complicated. The procedures I mentioned have 30, 40, 50% complication rates. Uh, most of the data come from the Netherlands and Europe that uh, have had a history in doing these procedures. I do find it interesting that uh, Finland, uh, the Netherlands, uh, the UK, multiple countries now are banning transgender medicine, having such a bad experience with it over the last five to 10 years. Some of you may be following famed uh, uh, psychologist Jordan Peterson in Canada, and he summarized this on a lot of his podcasts. I refer you to him on this. He's taken a strong stance that transgender medicine creates more harm than good. Uh, I've had uh, on our program Dr. Miriam Grossman, and plan to have her back, who's the uh, world's most famous child psychiatrist. She's said very clearly that um, th that the best you know, treatment or cure for gender dysphoria or gender ambiguity in a child who's struggling is to go through natural puberty. And that way it's cleared up, it's clarified. A, a boy becomes a man, a girl becomes a, a woman. There's always some degree of gender dysphoria or uncomfortableness with, uh, with one's gender as they approach puberty. The other important theme in all of this, and I made it clear in my uh, expert report for the Texas Attorney General, is that a lot of the interest in transgender medicine is driven through autism. And we learned uh, through uh, analyses, um, uh, multiple analyses, uh, and they're all my courageous discourse substack, 
that autistic children are um, far more likely to feel ostracized. That's a major uh, driver for being suggestible. And then when they're approached by counselors or by peers uh, or others, uh, they can be convinced that they're in the wrong uh, gender, they're, they're, they're in the wrong body, and they should try to change their body into the opposite gender. And then in a paper was published by Warrior and colleagues analyzing people in the LGBT community. And it turns out that, you know, they, they um, test very high for uh, autism. So we know that the, the back analysis on this suggests that autism is playing a major role. And then finally, the Autism Advocacy Network, they uh, uh, are strongly supporting transgender medicine, and they are working to try to overturn these state bans on transgender medicine. So uh, autism is driving the transgender agenda. Autism in the 1960s was one in 10,000, and now it's one in 36 and becoming uh, ever more uh, common. So as we have greater and greater numbers of autistic uh, children and young adults, we can expect this drive for transgender medicine uh, to continue. But in the net analysis, there's far more harm than good and uh, no good doctor or nurse or psychologist would participate in transgender medicine. Uh, that the true role of gender affirmation is actually affirming the gender at birth. Uh, that is, a, a little boy who's born a boy needs to be affirmed through the course of childhood that he will become a man. And the same is true for a little girl, that she will be affirmed by the parents and those at uh, daycare and childcare and school. That's what gender affirmation is, to affirm the gender at birth. Gender affirmation is not to uh, encourage people to change uh, their bodies to try to live out a fantasy as the opposite gender. Everything I've said applies to children, those under age 18. Now, once individuals become adults, I recognize that uh, there's a small portion of individuals who do find the, the same sex uh, more attractive and become homosexual. Uh, you know, over the course of adulthood in medicine, I've always taken care of these patients my entire career. I've taken care of transgender medicine patients and and obese people and thin people, people of all different racial and ethnic groups. I've taken care of prisoners and criminals and CEOs. Medicine is, is the most diverse and accepting of all the professions. And I speak on behalf of all the doctors, the, um, the allied health professions and nursing you know, that we take care of each and every patient without any prejudice, uh, without any degree of, um, of uh, racism at all. And, and we would never be prejudiced against uh, individuals who are in the uh, LGBT community. If they make those decisions as adults and they're willing to pay for these procedures and surgeries, I think it's perfectly fine. Now, in 2016, the Obama administration wrote into Obamacare that gender change uh, procedures, hormones, and surgery would be paid by uh, the federal government, uh, CMS, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and had to be paid by commercial insurance. I personally think that's wrong, uh, that we shouldn't have to foot the bill for these types of choices. They are elective choices, and we'll have to leave that discussion for another day. So I want to move on to the back side. Our featured guest today is Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, former Dean of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He's a personal friend of mine for several decades. 
And he's going to introduce his viewpoints on this, how he got into this great controversy in medicine and his new uh, not-for-profit organization to take a look at Do No Harm. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. One of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is healthy cell. And the healthy cell line is extensive. I typically focus on the microgel technology. Three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with the upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, and I've been diligent with the immune super boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, Find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity.
I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, your host of America Out Loud Talk Radio and Courageous Discourse. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the microphone, actually the virtual studio, uh, Dr. Stanley Gofarb, former professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and a dean of education there. He has uh, taken up the charge on protecting, uh, in many ways, uh, civil liberties, guarding us against uh, racial discrimination, and importantly, being a voice of reason in the transgender crisis. Dr. Goldfarb, welcome. Hi, Peter. It's great to be with you. It really is. Give us an update. We had you on America Out Loud Talk Radio, but some of my video uh, audience has not had a chance to, to meet you. Just really quickly, uh, just uh, give a brief introduction of your career and where you are now. Sure. Well, I was an academic physician at Penn, as you mentioned, for over 50 years, a professor of medicine there, nephrologist, worked with you on some very interesting projects that we had in the past and medical issues, always respected your judgment and, and, and your heterodox thinking, which was always extraordinarily valuable. So I congratulate you for that. Um, I, I finished my career as the associate dean for curriculum, and I became very upset with what I saw as trends in medical education, where diversity was starting to become more important than getting the best and the brightest students to become physicians and to promote faculty based on their on their clinical acumen and their research productivity rather than their views on how political ideology should play out. Um, that led me to write something in the Wall Street Journal that produced a big explosion in, on Med Twitter, something called Med Twitter. And then I wrote a book after that. The title of the book was Take Two Aspirins, Call Me By My Pronouns, about my concerns about oh. healthcare and, and medicine. And then um, we started Do No Harm in April of 2022. And, and with a view that let's do something about these issues and that let's not just talk about them. So we've had an organization that I think has been very active, particularly in two areas. Besides just trying to inform the public as much as we can, we've been active in the legislative and in the legal world to try to make changes in some of these areas. I'd be delighted to talk to you about them. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the aims of the organization. So we see ourselves as really being most interested in making sure that people are treated as individuals rather than as members of group of a group. So. So our view in, in healthcare has been that there's this progressive view to treat black patients as a member of a group of minority patients that need to be treated differently from all other patients, rather than treat them as individuals and identify their problems. And that's led to this idea that there ought to be separate protocols for black patients, that there should be so-called health equity, which means treating black patients differently than white patients in order to achieve some sort of elimination of healthcare disparities, which will definitely not be something that's going to be successful. And so we're against that. And we're, and we're against all manifestations of this notion of treating people as part of a group. And then we saw that the same thing was happening with, with the so-called gender affirming care. Now we've, we focus specifically on children and the idea that children who suddenly decide that they really need to change their gender ought to be treated with puberty blockers and then hormones and even ultimately surgery. And again, it's this where instead of being seen as individuals with individual problems, typically lots of psychological problems that produce this, this desire, they're being treated as, oh, you're a trans kid 
And as soon as they say, I, I think I'm trans, they're started down this pathway of transitioning, ultimately leading to God knows what, probably personal disaster for many of them. And, um, and, uh, and as, as someone just said to us recently, one of the members of SEGM, which is the Society for Evidence-Based uh, Gender Medicine, a, a really wonderful group that's really fighting against gender-affirming care, said, you know, th this probably isn't going to stop until the bodies start to, start to pile up, just the way oh. it happened with the opioid epidemic. So we're oh. trying to prevent that from happening. But in each case, those are our goals. Our goals are to get rid of this idea that people ought to be seen as members of a group rather than as individuals. Well, you know? isn't this members of a group, Stan? Isn't this somewhat weaponized? Uh, for example, a, a child who has gender ambiguity, if there's a claim that that child is a transsexual, then then it's weaponized to make the case that, well, uh, you, you have to respect them as a different person. You can't uh, you can't do anything else. They've basically self-declared in a unit. And therefore, once the declaration it may, is made, it kind of drives the whole agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you've had uh, Dr. Miriam Grossman on your mm -hmm. your show, and she's written a wonderful book that you've you've made sure the public was aware of, uh, so-called Lost in Transnation. And, and she outlines all this where it becomes a train. And, and there are a bunch of people that unfortunately now are starting to benefit from this. Physicians and other healthcare workers and institutions are benefiting from this, unfortunately, probably on the basis of some monetary rewards that they're getting for treating these patients. But also, I think they're true believers and they've, they've traded in evidence-based medicine for opinion-based medicine. And, and Stan, how can that be at these academic institutions, you know, do no harm? Uh, that goes back to the Hippocratic Oath. And and no surgeon would, would do an operation on a normal body uh, to do harm. And no medical doctor would prescribe hormones to a normal body with no disease. You know, yes, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting sort of uh, social phenomenon. And you know, John McWhorter in his book talks about woke religion, and, and it's sort of become a creed amongst these people that this is a real thing, that that every child that thinks they, they're in the wrong gender is in fact correct, that they are in the wrong gender, that this is a common medical problem instead of an extraordinarily rare phenomenon that probably only truly influences a handful of kids. They may have, there may be some children with real developmental problems, the way they develop with their ideas about um, sexual attraction and, and other sorts of things. I, Dr. Bailey, a professor at Northwestern, has laid out many of these ab abnormalities in sexual development, but clearly for the vast majority of these children, as, as you've pointed out on your show, uh, this is some sort of social phenomenon where they're being, it's a trend amongst, amongst kids. Why the medical world has adopted this is really hard to say. I think I think it's mostly been a few activists that have pushed this idea, and somehow it's become a known phenomenon that these are an oppressed group of people. And through critical race theory, any oppressed group of people needs to have special kinds of dispensations and, and treatment in a special fashion. And anybody who argues against that is then seen as either a transphobe in the area of uh, transgender medicine or as a racist in the area of sort of so-called healthcare disparities. And, and it's all nonsense. It's, it's, a, it's a gigantic lie. It's totally nonsensical. People that are concerned about these children's welfare are not 
people that hate transphobes. We, our organization says nothing about adults who want to go and change their, their body. Uh, I think it's a bad idea for many people, but, but you know, they're adults and they have a right to make these decisions. Um, but um, why the, the healthcare world has, has sort of gone down this path, I think a few activists have pushed it, people who are afraid to speak up. They're afraid to be labeled as racist or transphobes, and therefore it's better to keep quiet and let a few people carry out these uh, kinds of activities. But Stan, these are this is going on at really top tier medical institutions. Is it going on at Penn? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is a leader in this in this field. Uh, Washington, you know, the, the great famous one now has been the Washington University of St. Louis, one of the great medical centers in the country in the world. And the whistleblower there, Jamie Reed, who, who signed a, a, a declaration, a, a, um, a affidavit where she was a worker. She's a, a woman of the left. Her, she has a partner who's a transgender person. And she just felt like she could not stand anymore with these children being sort of railroaded into this pathway of, of puberty blockers and hormonal treatments and even surgeries. Um, and that, that's one of the great institutions in the country, in the world, without question. University of Washington, Seattle, another famous institution. They have a website where they specifically say, we do not provide any psychological care. And they're trying to promote transgender changes in the community by, by giving uh, primary care physicians some algorithms on how to care for these children. When it's clear that this is a, a group that needs in, incredible psychological support. Mm -hmm. and really should not be treated as if this is just another minor medical problem. Right. Yeah, you know, I featured on this program data that show that this gender journey, actually changing genders, increases the psycho psychiatric burden of care, increases mortality of all causes. And Stan, it's, it's astonishing that that doctors would do this and nurses would participate in doing this. I was told by a family medicine doctor that on a, on a family medicine board exam now, there's a question about a child with uh, gender dysphoria approaching puberty. And the correct answer is to start puberty blockers. Yes, yes. We, we actually uh, highlighted that in our, on our website that we had a, someone who gave us a source who gave us that tip as well. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's really quite extraordinary. And, you know, the latest sort of area you wanted to up to date of, of what we're actually up to has been our attempt and the attempt of others to try to get medical societies to really look at the, at the evidence right now that argues, in fact, that, trans, that this sort of transgender affirming care should be stopped. Now, as you know, and as you've reported, four uh, countries in Europe, uh, Sweden, Norway, um, Finland and the United Kingdom now have severely curtailed any of this transgender treatment for children. It's not, they haven't eliminated it. And the opponents say, see, they really haven't eliminated it because they understand that there is a, a historical condition that affected very rare children who there was some rationale for putting them through some sort of changes. We're talking about something that happens one in a million. Now it's like, you know, it's like 10 in, in, in a thousand are supposedly the ones who are being affected by this. Um, and um, so we're really trying to get in American uh, medical professional societies to, um, to look at this issue. And we've written extensively to the endocrine society, which is made up of adult endocrinologists as well as pediatric endocrinologists. 
to get them to do a systematic review of the current literature, which will show that there is no good evidence to support this treatment, just as these European countries have, have understood. And now recently, Leora Sapir and, um, and the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine have pushed the American Academy of Pediatrics to, um, to do a review, and they've agreed to do such a review. The Endocrine Society has been resistant, and we're trying to get the members of the Endocrine Society, some of them are members of our organization, do no harm, to put pressure on their organization. They should be doing science, and they should be doing careful evaluations instead of affirming this as being uh, an acceptable treatment in the face of these four major progressive European countries, not known for their conservative viewpoints, looking at their own experience and saying, you know, we think we're harming more children than we're, we're helping and we need to curtail this dramatically. Yeah, I think certainly they should look at the actions of those countries. It was very prominent in the British Medical Journal uh, announcement that puberty blockers would be banned yes. uh, during the childhood years. Now, one of the things that struck me is on the surgical outcome. So uh, you and I are medicine doctors, so we're used to you know outcomes from medical studies, but the surgical outcomes, in my view, need to be carefully reviewed. I, I've seen astronomical rates of surgical complications, need for reoperation, uh, uh, you know, unintended consequences of these surgeries regarding uh, urologic manifestations of, of problems, urinary leakage, um, uh, you know, taking and doing an operation on a normal human body and making it better is, is very hard to do. And, um, you know, there are some techniques that, you know, adult people choose, women, uh, you know, can certainly choose and do plastic surgery to, to influence their appearance. Uh, but beyond that, uh, in a growing child, it's very hard to do an elective surgery in a normal body and anticipate what's going to happen in the outcomes. And it's certainly not good. Um, you know, I can give you an update from Texas. Uh, there was a bill passed and finally signed into law by Governor Abbott uh, banning transgender medicine, essentially, before the age of 18. And that was set to go into effect September 1st, 2023. And then immediately the American Civil Liberties Union filed uh, filed an injunction against that. It's been the, so the, the law, the ban is currently stayed and now it's in the courts. Uh, Stan, what is it about uh, the American Civil Liberties Union? You know, they were absent during COVID when those people's rights were taken away from them all over the place. Uh, and suddenly they're out in force on the transgender crisis. What is it about the ACLU and transgender that, that is really driving this? Again, I, I sort of go back to this is a, a worldview that ascribes to critical race theory. And critical race theory specifically says, now it talks of, it's in the context of race, but it's, it's extended through so-called intersectionality to many other groups. Any group that doesn't represent white men, basically, is a group that's being oppressed by white men. And therefore, any group that you can identify that you could possibly come to support that is considered to be oppressed will be a target of such support. And I think it's that mentality. So the mentality is, you know, and the other issue, of course, with, with uh, many of these, these groups that are supporting this is for years they supported gay rights. And once gay marriage became something that was acceptable, 
and approved and no longer seen as some sort of, by, by at least the country from a legal perspective as any sort of a deviant kind of behavior, but represented a normal uh, judgment that people could make and it was acceptable in society. These organizations had to find something else because otherwise their funding would dry up. And that's part of it. I, I have no doubts that that's part of it. So now they've decided this is a group, the transgender individuals, we certainly have been discriminated against. There's no question about that, adults. And, you know, they shouldn't be discriminated against if they don't do any harm to anyone else. I understand that. But suddenly it became not only something to say, let's make sure that they're not discriminated against, it became something to celebrate. And the same with the gender affirming children. It's something to celebrate because now you're speaking up for an oppressed group. And we should speak up for oppressed groups when it comes to something that we really can do something about or or their oppression is something that we can relieve. But we shouldn't be speaking up for groups that are actually producing harm, like the individuals who are pushing gender affirmation care, so-called gender affirmation care for children, or groups that are pushing treating uh, physicians as uh, racist people in order to improve the outcome for black patients, when in fact, that's not the problem. That's not why black patients have disparate outcomes at all because of um, because of the way physicians are treating them, but rather it, it's a very complex genetic, cultural, behavioral kind of issue that really needs a very different kind of approach. You know, our organization, we want to see people do better. We want to see these children do better. We want to see them get much better health care than they're getting in terms of their psychological care if they decide they need to undergo gender transition. We want to see detransitioners, kids that have gone through gender transition and have realized that it wasn't for them and that they were really harmed by. We wanna see them get proper care. Right now, they don't get good insurance coverage and they're sort of ignored by all these organizations that have guidelines for how to put children through transition, but not what to do once they wanna stop undergoing transition. So that's what we're interested in. We're interested in better outcomes. We're not interested in stopping things. We're interested in a better outcome for people. And the current approach is to either uh, gender affir affirming care or this idea of, uh, treating black people differently because of their race, because of their skin color. These are, these are bad ideas that are just harming people. They're not benefiting anyone. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people don't know this, but the physician workforce uh, is, is probably the most diverse workforce uh, in, in, in the modern day economy. Uh, my son just graduated from medical school and uh, 9% of his class were white male. Yeah. <laughs> now, and, uh, theoretically, if they got to zero white males, they'd be 100 percent diverse. Uh, so the invert, you know, the inverse of diversity is zero, is zero uh, white male. Uh, but um, but boy, it's 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 hard to get more diverse than that. It's, it's slightly more. Women you know, than it's, it's a very interesting thing. Peter. One of the things our organization is very interested in is this idea that we need to have racial concordance between patients and physicians. That's one of the arguments for increasing the number of various minorities going into medicine, because that's going to improve outcomes. And it's interesting, if you look at the, the newspaper reports, or even tomes put out by the AAMC, the Regulatory Body for American Medical Schools, they claim that there's good evidence that that improves health outcomes for Black patients. And the truth is, it, there is no good evidence for that. Mm. There is only one study that shows that there's any effect of the race of the physician on the health outcome of the, of the patient, the black patient, that's a positive study. And that study is a study of 
neonates in Florida, it's been roundly criticized as not really being accurate because they could not, they could not assess how sick the children were cared for by black physicians versus white physicians, neonatologists. And that's it. The rest of the literature just does not support this idea. And yet this has become the rationale for organizations like the American Medical Association, the, the Association of American Medical Colleges to say, we must increase the number of minority physicians because that's the only way we're going to improve the healthcare of black people. And it's nonsense. It's not true. There's no evidence for it. And yet it's just another example of sort of the big lie coming to an important aspect of, of American life, the healthcare system. Well, you know, and there's very little room to go. It's almost all minorities right now. So like I say, it's only 9% white men if, if my son's class is any uh, representation. So there's there's very little room to go to become uh, uh, to become more diverse. So Stan, let's uh, let's transition now to some updates. You but you I'm on I, I joined your organization, Do No Harm. I think everybody listening who's interested in this topic should donate, support your organization. I joined fully. And uh, you've been sending out some email updates that I've been interested in. So why don't you update our, our audience on, on your developments? Yeah, there have been a lot of developments. Here was one really nice one recently, which is in Kentucky, where we have a nurse, uh, Laura Morgan, who's worked with us. Laura has a very interesting story that was actually written up in the Wall Street Journal a few months back. She was a nurse who worked at uh, Baylor and White Clinic in uh, uh, Scott and White Clinic, I'm sorry, in uh, in Texas, and she, which is part of Baylor uh, Medical School, and she was, um, she was fired because she didn't write this bias uh, uh, study uh, that she had to take. She had a course that she had to take an implicit bias and then take a quiz afterwards. And she refused to say that she thought that uh, physician bias and nurse bias was the basis for poor outcomes. And she was uh, fired because of this. And she's sort of taken it upon herself to really be conscious of what's gone on around the country for nurses. And the Kentucky Nursing Association demanded that nurses to get their license renewed had to take implicit bias training. And she fought against this. There was a story in the Washington Examiner about this. And we just heard that the Kentucky Nurses Association has decided to eliminate this. Now, this issue of, of having physicians and health, other healthcare workers take implicit bias training is another strong approach that's been taken by many organizations to get rid of what they call systemic racism in healthcare. We know that implicit bias training is a total waste of time, money, and that in fact, it has the opposite effect when it's been really looked at. It tends to get people more angry because they feel like it doesn't represent the way they deal with their colleagues or with patients. And that's not to say there aren't people in the world who treat other people poorly, but this doesn't mean that there's, it's a systematic problem. It means it's an individual problem if it, if it even exists in any numbers. So that's been a big win for us. We're very pleased about that. The other thing that we've been involved in, of course, is we've been helping to support these laws that have blocked transgender medicine. And it's now been, our, our efforts have been um, led to at least 18 states now and, and others are on the way, mostly in the Midwest who have passed laws. Now you mentioned the, uh, the fact that in Texas it's been enjoined. And one of, our, argu one of our, our efforts in fighting against the endocrine society's position is that what typically happens in these, in, when the, the, the laws are enjoined is that the judges do this because what the judges say is, well, you uh, talking to the, the complainant saying, how can you tell me to stop these, 
to, to pursue these laws when all these medical societies say that these laws are a good idea, that these efforts are proper. And we want the judges to understand that this is not really what the science shows. And once we can get these societies to speak up and say, you know, we've looked at it carefully and we're not so sure that this is the best thing, that will help these laws to be enacted and to, be, to become um, effective. You know, I guess what was going through my mind is, are there any exemplary high-level medical centers that have said, no, that, that we're, not, we're not going in on this? Well, we forced some to do it. I mean, the, for example, <laughs> Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt has now said that they're not going to be doing this anymore uh, because, um, you know, Tennessee has passed the law. I mean, that's the problem. In order to get these, these centers to, to step up and do the right thing, we've had to have laws passed in the states to say that this is against the law in your state. And unfortunately, is, is it going to drive people to go to other states? Possibly, you know, but I think what we're hoping is that these institutions will understand that they really need to give these children psychotherapy. And we don't, we're not saying the children shouldn't be treated. They should be treated with psychotherapy. As Dr. Grossman said on your program, you know, the way to treat psychological problems is with psychological treatments, not with surgery. And, oh, yeah. And, 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 and Stan, she said something else that really stuck with me. She says the best cure for gender dysphoria is let the child go through normal puberty. Yeah. That no, normal puberty changes not only the body, but the mind and really secures a man and uh, a woman and, and their all their characteristics. So uh, it's so common to have some ambiguity, some discomfort, you know, emotionally, physically approaching puberty. I think everybody, you know, has gone through that. Uh, but the idea to intercept a child and then irreversibly change them with hormones and surgery, I, I can tell you as a doctor, I, I couldn't go along with it. Uh, today, I, I actually had an interview in the library at University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, and I graduated there as a top graduate. And um, you know, I was chosen as the top 30 graduates in the history of the school. It was a wonderful honor. But do you know that that center is also participating in transgender medicine? Yeah. And, and I'm and, and and it's something I can't be proud of as a doctor. Yeah, I know, I know. It's uh, it's it's the the best and the brightest are, are involved in this, which is just bizarre. Um, but you know, and and I think I think someday I think you've had Chloe Cole on your program as well, haven't you? Have uh, she's the uh, a young woman who works with us who's a who went is a detransitioner. So just to tell your audience her story, mm -hmm. she, was, um, she was a tomboy. She had autism, and she readily speaks about this. And, um, and then she went to uh, her pediatrician, and they, they said, yeah, you know, you're, you're a trans child. She, she said she was interested in that. She felt alienated from her peers. So she ended up starting on puberty blockers and then hormones and then had her breast removed when she was 16. That's one of the things that the, uh, the people who support this keep saying is that we're not doing any of these surgeries on children. And yet here are the children that they've done the surgeries on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then she realized that was a terrible mistake and that she now has lost her breasts. She has, as you mentioned, surgical complications. She has weeping wounds to where she had them. She has lots of genital problems, lots of urinary tract problems, all related to the hormones that she was on. Now she's a really brilliant very, very lovely young woman. She testified in front of Congress and, you know, it just uh, illustrates uh, this issue that, you know, there are people that are really being harmed by this in a, in a really awful way. And yet 
you know, the best and the brightest institutions are allowing this sort of thing to go on. It's a, it's a very strange phenomenon. Uh, to tell you what else we're up to, uh, we're also uh, supporting a lawsuit that just was filed in, in, the, um, in, in California. We decided to take on a blue state as well, not just the red states. Um, and it, we have a, 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 one of our senior fellows, Dr. Marilyn Singleton, who's a, a black physician. She was a, um, an anesthesiologist and um, she's now, I think, retired. And she's suing uh, the state of California along with another physician because she does not want to take implicit bias training as a, re a requisite for her to get her license renewed. And there are several states in the, in the country that are sort of demanding this, including Massachusetts and, uh, and uh, Minnesota, I believe, or Michigan rather, Massachusetts and Michigan. Um, and so, because this, you know, A is a big waste of time, it's a big waste of money, and it sends a terrible message. You know, if the idea is that we're trying to get patients to trust their physicians and to trust the healthcare system, to go around and tell them, you know, we've got to make sure your physician is trained because we know they're biased against you and we've got to do all we can to eliminate this bias. It's a terrible dynamic to impose on the American people. And yet that's, that's really what's going on. So that lawsuit was just filed and we're going to take it right through to conclusion. It's one of four or five lawsuits that we've been involved in, all with the same theme of not trying to get money out of anyone, but trying to get them to change practices that are clearly, you know, against American constitutional thought, treating people differently based on race and uh, excluding, you know, whites and Asians from access to things like medical scholarships and employment opportunities. That's the sort of thing that we're against. And, you know, Dr. Ed, uh, Mr. Ed Bloom, who was the head of the uh, Students for Fair Admissions, the, the group that sued Harvard and UNC and had their case supported by the Supreme Court recently, he's one of our board members. And we're very proud of that. He's a wonderful person. And that, that idea that we want to make sure that there's no discrimination going on in this country in any way, shape, or form, that's, that's what our, our legal strategy is all about and our legislative strategy as well. Yeah, give us a bit of an update on uh, your group in terms of, and members affiliated with it in, in terms of what's going on in Capitol Hill. Yes, well, you know, the thing is, of course, as, as you well know, healthcare is really a state-run um, activity. So most of our, our legislative efforts are aimed at the states. Now, having said that, there are oversight functions that the federal government is involved in. We recently worked with uh, the uh, House Oversight Committee on Education to get them to query the, um, the accrediting agency for medical schools to ask whether they really demand uh, that, that schools engage in various diversity activities in order to gain to maintain their accreditation. Because that's one of the things that the medical schools have said, if you stop us from, from focusing on diversity as opposed to meritocracy, we're gonna lose our accreditation. That always seemed a rather bizarre claim. Mm -hmm. And so we, had, uh, we spoke with the House committee and the, the committee was very interested. They did their due diligence and the head of the committee, Dr. Fox, from uh, North Carolina, the uh, member of the House of Representatives, sent a letter to the, the uh, LCME, the Li Liaison Committee on Medical Education, the accrediting agency, to ask them, you know, what's the story? What, what is your diversity uh, requirements? And they reported back that, no, they really don't have any. It's up to each individual school. So this idea that this is some sort of requirement of accreditation is nonsense. So that's been one example of our, our work on, the, on Capitol Hill. 
but most of our efforts have been at the at the state level, as I mentioned, in Tennessee, uh, in in Kentucky, in uh, Kansas, Missouri, Utah. Uh, we've done some work in Texas and um, in Wisconsin. So in Ohio is is another target that we're going to have to try to get both laws that prohibit DEI. And I'll, I'll, I'll just mention some of the DEI uh, efforts that we were engaging. We, we want to stop this idea that physicians need to take implicit bias training and other kinds of DEI courses to get a license. We want to have transparency in medical school admissions. If the state funded medical schools are taking in kids because of their skin color, as opposed to who's really the most qualified, we want the, the members of the, of the states to know that their tax money is going towards that. So we want that to occur. We want these schools to stop spending money on DEI bureaucracies by bringing in consultants that cost you know, huge amounts of money. For example, in, in, um, in uh, Tennessee, we know that the state spends over uh, $3 million at the University of Tennessee in their DEI bureaucracy. And this is money that if they're worried about how students can pay for medical education, Spend those $3 million on scholarships for medical students. Don't waste your money on this sort of thing. So that's what our, our legislative efforts are focused on. And then, of course, in the gender-affirming care, it's to, it's to you know, just stop this treatment and, and force careful study of the issues and, and come to some point in the future where only children that would benefit from this, the rare, rare child that might benefit from this is the one who goes through this. And that this automatic treatment of kids, as soon as they express some gender, you know, un unease, um, that they get put on these pathways, that this this is stopped, no longer is allowed. Mm -hmm. Stan, it seems like this quickly got into the courts. Um, have you ever been asked, or your group's been asked, to just be at a debate at one of the major medical meetings regarding <laughs> diversity, equity, and inclusion? or regarding transgender medicine. Is this ever something we can have a point counterpoint at, at a major meeting? You know, I was once invited right before the COVID epidemic to come to the AAMC <laughs> and to state my opinion, because my I had written a few things at that point. Uh, but then COVID hit, the, and now it's it would be totally impossible. As you know, as you've been canceled, I've been canceled, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, in many arenas. And you know, the view is that, again, uh, unless you're labeled a racist or a transphobe by your peers, your peers are suspect. This is, you know, McCarthyism uh, now brought to the <laughs> to the other end of the political spectrum. And anybody who, who is, even has a taint of thinking, I think, just logically or clearly is viewed as uh, someone who has uh, real moral flaws in their character. And, and that just can't be allowed. We could not be allowed to speak at these organizations. And it's to their utter shame, I think, that they don't let people like you stand up there and, and state the issues yeah, for them. Just have a, we used to be able to do that. And I agree with you, it was, it was before COVID. It seemed like to me, everything was fine. And, and then we went through the pandemic and, and now there's just, there, there's no point counterpoint on any of these issues. I just want to spend the last few minutes and get your commentary on on all of this, what's called gender indoctrination in the schools. The teachers are reporting uh, pornography in, in, the, in the, you know, the K through 12 textbooks, mm -hmm. uh, sex clubs after school, um, you know, bathroom controversies, uh, you know, men and women's sports. 
Uh, Stan, how does all that relate to what we've been talking about? Yeah, no, I think it's all part and parcel of this idea of the way that that people interact with other people is through either an oppressor or oppressee. And, and that that's, when you really strip it all away, it's kind of this, you know, this Marxist view of there's an elite group that is imposing its will on others. And it, this is a pushback for it. You know, our organization has been very careful about sticking in our very narrow lanes of, mm-hmm. you know, healthcare and, uh, and children's uh, transgender alterations through either social transformation or the, the various medicalization. We haven't strayed into these areas. People are not sensing what it's like for the, the vast majority of kids who have to be exposed to this in, in, in the worry about the rare child that is the transgender person or the person that's seeking to seek a bathroom that's different from their gender. So it's sort of become this, this terror controlled by the minority of what majority life is like. And I, I think, you know, you have to worry about the minority. You have to make sure people aren't being oppressed. But at the same time, I think the majority does have rights and the, the majority does have the opportunity for privacy. And I can imagine, you know, any of us that have grandchildren or, or children of, of a, mm-hmm. a tender age thinking that they're going to be exposed to this stuff. You know, the, the discussion goes on amongst adults, but it's the children who are suffering uh, over all these kinds of approaches. And, and I think what's gone on in the schools has, has been absolutely outrageous. And, um, you know, organizations like Parents Defending Education and No Left Turn in Education, these are very powerful organizations. They're mostly mothers who saw what their children were being exposed to and said, this is absurd. I, we don't want this. And you don't have a right to impose this on us. And the schools don't have a right to tell us how to raise our children from a moral perspective. Their job is to educate them about history and civics and math. Yeah. And science, not to give, not to determine what their personalities are going to be like or what their moral values are going to be like, and that's for parents. That's that's for religion, and that's for uh, the family to determine those things. It certainly is, Stan. We're going to have to leave it here. This has been a great update. I want to congratulate you personally as a friend and an academic leader for really having courage and stepping forward in a time where it seems to me as if you know an unnecessary crisis has come down upon us and it does have these threads of uh, of uh, authoritarianism totalitarianism uh censorship uh stripping away of civil liberties uh, and no one can really figure out what's behind it but gosh we are all affected by it uh the vast majority of americans people in healthcare were uncomfortable right now and i think you're showing uh, showing the world uh, how we can have civil discourse, how we can do things reasonably and rationally, and actually how we can use the uh, the tools of uh, the legal system as well as legislation to try to get some balance. So Stan Goldfarb, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. That means a lot coming from you. So thank you very much.